You must consider yourself alive forever. You're immortal now. Not everybody is, but you are. And the trust in Jesus that that is true is life. It is a life that will never end. And as Paul will talk about, it is the power to walk uprightly in the midst of the world of men who are not walking uprightly, but are walking in crooked ways, twisted ways, perverse ways. And such are we by birth. Paul has put a great amount of effort in chapters 1 through 3 to convince us that all of us are born sinful and unclean. That means twisted and evil. We know that salvation is by grace and not by works, that there's nothing we can do to make ourselves live forever. But now that we are going to live forever, something gets to change in us. It doesn't mean that we're going to make ourselves good now. It means that he has already called us good. And believing that is good. And it will therefore have an effect on you, since it's not something you've done to yourself, it's something he's doing to you. The Holy Spirit is alive inside of you. He is risen. Alleluia. You would not say that if the Holy Spirit was not alive in you. So because you know this again, because you know that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, you must consider yourself alive forever. And that consideration is the power to walk differently than the rest of the wicked men in this valley of shadow. This walk is between then and now. That is, we have it all now by faith. We don't have it all now by sight. We're walking towards something that we still hope for because nobody hopes for what they already have. But we're walking nonetheless. Romans chapter 6 now is about what that walk looks like, how that walk happens. Chapter 7 next week will be just as important as we'll see that most of that walk is a struggle against yourself in which it doesn't feel like you're winning because you're not winning. You're being brought to a remembrance that Christ has won. But it all starts then not with the experience of you not winning, but with the testimony that Christ has won. This is where we've been last week in chapter 5 with there being a new Adam, a new man, a new humanity who has been declared the sovereign dominion over all mankind and especially then those who believe. Paul's going to begin to unpackage that now and say where this happens to you. Again, if you would like to turn to page 942 in your pew Bible, where Romans chapter 6 begins, or if you brought your own Bible, I got you to start bringing your own Bible, all the better. And remember, there's always those three by five blank cards and some gel pens in the pew for you to take a few notes along the way. 
We're going to start with verse 1 that we didn't hear read this morning. We're not going to get through the whole chapter. We're going to go bird's eye view as we normally do. But he says, first, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So the question is coming. Since we are saved, what do we do now? And someone who himself is a hypocrite and an unbeliever will say, well, since we're saved, we can do whatever we want. We might as well just go have as much fun as we can. We might as well eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's in fact what unbelievers think. Get what you can while you can, because you never know when it's going to be over. But you must consider yourself immortal now. It's never going to be over. So what shall we say since we know that grace is the reason this has taken place? Well, by no means should we sin all the more that grace may abound. That's verse 2. Rather, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now that's an honest question since we're all going to still live in it. We who have been killed in Christ, dead to sin, are going to walk from here to then in sin. But how? How can we bear it? And that's just it. That's the point. It's going to be a war. It's going to be a war against yourself by yourself. The Holy Spirit renewing yourself to despise that part of yourself that doesn't ever and will never be renewed. That's how you're going to live in the sin. But the point again is, you're not going to like it. You're not going to be glad for it. As Solomon says, and it's so hard to believe, but it's right there in Ecclesiastes, the day of your death will be better than the day of your birth. That's the Bible. Because how can you stand to be in the sin? To depart is to go and be with Christ, which is better by far. And while it is not bad that you would remain and be with others whom you love, to serve them in holiness and to tell them about the truth of the scriptures, to pass forward the faith to the next generation, when you are released from this burden, it will be a uplifting like Elijah's ascension into heaven, wherein all of his weariness was let drift away and he was taken into bliss, total bliss. So how can we live in it? This then is the mystery of what it means to be a baptized disciple of Jesus Christ. Verse three of chapter six is one of the most powerful verses about baptism in the Bible, even though really, Paul's point isn't baptism. Like he's not trying to give you a primer on what baptism is. He's just assuming you know what baptism is and what it does. Now, before I go too far into the verse, I want to say one thing about the word baptism. Baptism is a Greek word. It's not an English word. It's a Greek word. There are these times in the Bible where in English we took the original word and we just brought it over. And sometimes this makes a lot of sense. Alleluia. Say it. See, you know Hebrew, okay? It's a Hebrew word. Amen. You know Hebrew. Okay, so baptism. Hey, you speak Greek. That's amazing, yeah? Uh, So what does baptism mean in Greek is important, though, if you're really going to understand what the text says. 
It doesn't say, don't you know that all of us who had holy water from the church put on us are in Christ. That's not what it says. It just says, don't you know that everyone who was washed in Christ has been buried in Christ? So baptism is the Greek word for washing. It can mean to pour, it can mean to dip, it can mean to immerse, but it doesn't only mean to immerse. It means to get wet with water in order to make it clean. And to be sure, baptism, washing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's a holy thing. That's not any ordinary washing. This is not your dishwater, okay? But it isn't a thing by itself. It's a thing where the Word of God comes along and makes a promise in a very specific place. And that makes that place special. Yes? So here we go. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been washed into Christ Jesus were washed into his death? So when you got wet in the name of God, that was God saying to you, you're dead in Jesus on the cross. That's why baptism saves That's why baptism regenerates. That's why baptism is a lavish washing of his grace upon you. Not because of the power of the water, but because it is the place where he says to you, I wash you. What fool hears God say, I wash you with water on the face and says, no, you didn't. It's just a symbol. Do you see the folly of the Enlightenment and the rationalists who say water can't do such things? It's strange. Because all it is is a promise. It's all it is. There's no magic power. It's just God's word saying, I wash you. And so don't you know, all of us washed by God, what were we washed into? The death of Jesus. That's Paul's actual point. He's not really trying to write a treatise on baptism. He's trying to convince you, you're dead in Jesus. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him, that's Jesus, now he does say, by the washing, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So why are you to consider yourself buried with Jesus? So that you may consider yourself alive with Jesus. Because Jesus, well, he is risen. Alleluia. As death could not contain him, therefore, since you're in him, death will not be able to contain you. Now, I want to emphasize here one little portion of verse 4, that it doesn't mention resurrection just yet. It'll talk about resurrection later, a couple verses down. But first, we're dead in Christ so that we might walk in newness of life now. Now. You are already seated at the right hand of the Father in the body of Jesus Christ. You are already immortal now. The experience of it isn't maybe what you would like. I would prefer my immortality to feel kind of like being up all the time. Uh, just, gah, gah. Like, I'd love that. I would love that. I don't experience that at all. It's quite the other way around. But what I do experience is that in the midst of whatever trial, travail, suffering, failure, and absolute sin that I experience, I nonetheless know that that's not really all I am. Because I've been washed into the death of Christ. So whatever I might feel about me, he has said something different. 
and his word is far greater than my heart. My heart, in fact, is deceptive above all things. His word is truth. Yes? And so, again, to walk in newness of life is to walk in the uprightness of knowing you've been called out of death into life, not by your own doing, but by the promises that Jesus Christ is, again, he is risen. Hallelujah. All right. So, walking in newness of life, it's now, it's by faith. It is faith. Remember, faith is trust that what God says is true. And that includes then that he has washed you. Verse 5. Same argument, same point. He's just like, look, if you died with him, you're going to live with him. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So right now, baptism has killed you in Christ's death, and you get to experience joining him the rest of your life. But you get to do so knowing that he is no longer dead, and so therefore you also shall, as he says, never die. That experience then, again, of newness of life, of my trust in Jesus over and against what I see in myself and the world, is about the crucifixion of my old mind, my old soul, or as he calls it, my old man. In verse 6, of course, in our latter days where we don't like gender unneutral language, it says self there. Uh, Verse 6, we know that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Notice the past tense before you notice anything else. Your old man, your sinner, your sinful condition, your body and soul born from Adam has been. We know that our old self was crucified with him. You're not waiting for this. You're not trying to make this happen. This isn't about sanctification right now. This isn't about more good works. It's about knowing the fact that you're already dead. And again, that's why you're already alive. That part of you that will never believe, that part of you that will continue to, uh, what, flare up with sinful thoughts, which want to become words and strive so hard to become deeds, it's dead now. Even though it just happened, you just saw it, it came out again. It's dead now. It's like a fish out of water flopping around. It's not going to make it. It's going in the grave. You know that about your sin. I mean, write that down. Hold it firm. You must consider yourself dead to sin. He's going to say that again in just a moment. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. This means, indeed, that your body is going to go in the grave. You're going to die so that your sin will be brought to nothing, left in the grave. When you come out of the grave, sin's not coming with you. And in the meantime, again, as you have these sinful thoughts that will attack you, we call them temptations, when your passions lead you to want things that are not good, you don't have to lose to that like everyone else who's just like, oh, I want it so bad, I have to do it. You have a power, which is hope in the resurrection, to say no to your flesh, to discipline your flesh. We'll come back to that more here in a moment too, but that's what he means by the body of sin being brought to nothing. It means that your new man 
is greater than your old man. It doesn't have to listen to your old man anymore so that you're no longer enslaved to the sin, as it says in verse 6, like everyone else, enslaved to their passions. Go ahead and jump down to verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Yes, this is the certainty. This is the change of kingdoms. This is the collapse of this age and the coming of the next. And you know that you're in the next. That's the power. That's the hope. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin, right? He took all the sin in his death. It's there. It's there, not here anymore. It looks like it's here, but it's there in him on the cross. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He's resurrected now, no sin in him at all, and living with as God forever and ever. So, verse 11, we sang it every week this Easter season. So, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I just highlight it, write it down, come back to it. You must consider yourself dead to sin. That doesn't mean you're never going to sin. It means whenever you do sin, you must consider it dead. It can't touch you. You're alive in Jesus now. Does that mean you should try to sin more? No, it means you're going to try not to actually. You're going to hate it more. You're going to fight it more. And when you find it, you're going to be like, uh, why? And, but you know what? Jesus is stronger. Jesus is stronger. Look at verse 10. Uh, we just did. Look at verse 12. So let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. I'm going to read it again. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Does it say never find sin in your heart? Does it say, get better and better until you find a sanctified life where you don't have any more troubles? Does it say, live victoriously in health and wealth forever? No, it says none of that. It just says, don't let sin reign. Don't let it take over. Don't let it be your master. And the first place it's your master is when it tells you that it separates you from Jesus. When it tells you that what you've done now makes you not good enough for Jesus. That's the first place it becomes your master. All the other stuff is ancillary. All the other stuff hurts your neighbor more than it hurts you. What hurts you is when you see the sin and then you get guilty and shamefaced over it rather than say to it, it's dead in Christ and so I'm going to walk away from it now. Which again is the power to actually walk away from it now. To see it in your heart and then not let it get from your heart to your mouth or from your heart to your hands. That is again to let your passions, right? what you want, what you desire, when you know that it's wrong because scripture says it's wrong, you then say, okay, fine, I'll do what's right. I don't feel like doing what's right. I don't want to do what's right. I'm a sinner. But the sin doesn't get to reign in me now. I consider myself dead to sin. I'll go do the right thing. And even though on judgment day, God could accuse me of not having the right heart the whole time, I don't care because on judgment day, I'm going to be declared justified for the sake of Jesus. And so what matters now is how what I do here impacts you, not what it does for me on judgment day. And so if I hate you in my heart, but I love you with my actions and words, what's it matter to you? It doesn't. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God in Christ in such a case. I don't obey the passions of my flesh. I don't let the sin reign in my mortal body. Can you do this perfectly? That's a stupid question. It's the wrong question. But you will do this as a Christian. You will struggle against your sin 
And the main struggle will be in believing that Christ is sufficient for your sin. And as you struggle continually the rest of your life to believe that Christ is sufficient for your sin, your neighbors are going to get a better you out of it. You want to look in the mirror? You're not going to see a better you. Mirrors don't make better yous. Looking at Christ, knowing he's for you, a better you will emerge. Look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. It's not about what you do. It's about Jesus for you. And Jesus being for you is going to do for you all sorts of good, including stopping you from those things that hurt you and your neighbor. You're no longer under the dominion of sin. You're under the reign of the King, Jesus Christ. It's good news. It's true. Let's look at verse 20. Skipping a section here. We'll look at the end of the chapter. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now that's talking about unbelievers. What's an unbeliever? I mean, translate this. All non-Christians. Anyone who doesn't believe that he is risen. Alleluia. And we could say anyone who is unable to confess the creeds, they are slaves to sin. This has tremendous wisdom for you when you go shopping for a new car. It doesn't mean just because the guy says Christian used cars that he's actually a Christian. Don't get me wrong. Okay. My point is you have to understand that all the people on this planet who are not in Jesus Christ are slaves to their passions. They don't care about you no matter what they say. They say they care about you in order to take advantage of you. That's what it means to be not free in regard to righteousness. They can't even do good when they try because the only way for them to do good is for themselves. And that bends it, that twists it. Do you see? If I try to do good to you for me, I can't possibly do good to you. I can only do what's good for me. If the measure is what do I get out of it, I will always bend it back to myself. That's why the Lutherans called sin being incurvatus, being curved in on oneself. When you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. It didn't matter what you did. You just went and you did it. And you got the punishment for your actions in what you did. Now things have changed. Verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Everyone who's out there, slaves to their sin, know what they're getting out of it. I, I know a man. I'm trying to not talk out of school. He's not a member. He's not a Christian. He's a good man. In the sense that he had a lifelong career here in Rockford where he did good work and he never cheated anybody. And he hated all those cheaters who cheated in his business. He had a nice home, got good kids for the most part, a couple of divorces down the line, but you know, good kids for the most part. He's got everything he could possibly want as a toy. And every time I've ever talked to this man, all he does is complain about everything being wrong. That's the fruit he's getting out of his life. He knows it's not working. 
Does he think God's the answer? No. Does he think Christ is the answer? No. The times I try to speak about church, does he think that's the right? No. But the point here again is, don't assume everyone else out there is having a great life because they're not. Like the louder they are about, man, my life's great, (laughs) the more they're hiding from you. The more they're posturing, the more they're a poser. All those pictures you see scrolling by on Facebook, they're, they're posting that there. And they're like, oh my goodness, I hope someone looks at it. How many likes do I got? Because I'm having a terrible day. I need something to make me feel good. It's the way it works, okay? So again, what fruit do you get from this world? No matter how good it gets, where are you going to end up in the grave? And so again, his point is, you already know this. It wasn't worth it the other way. For the end of those things is death. But, verse 22, now that you have been set free from sin, that's the emphatic point, you're free from sin. But pastor, I still have sin. That's right, and you're free from it. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to holiness, sanctification, and its end, eternal life. Not good works, but being set apart. Yes, being one who is called out of the darkness by a word from outside of you that declares you different from everything and everybody else. A now slave of God. It really does work like this. I mean, slavery historically is not what slavery was in the United States. We had this real bad set of blinders on dealing with how slavery happened in the United States. Slavery historically is normal in human society. It is common and it is still practiced in many parts of the world, including in the United States, if you follow any of the news with regard to sex slave trafficking of young women. That being said, the image then is a normal image, a common image of Men coming with money to buy a human, to have that human belong to them. And the humans are brought up onto the auction block, and they're bought, and then they're taken. Now, I would say that's evil. I certainly don't want that to happen to me or my children, so why would I ever want it to happen to anybody else? But that's also what Jesus did to you. He came by the auction. He saw you on the block. And he bought you with everything he had. So you're now his slave. He's your master. And all of our hatred for human slavery is a problem if it gets in the way of our love of our slavery under Christ. Is it a slavery where he's going to whip you and beat you and make you pick cotton? No, it's not. It's a lot more like the medieval understanding of chivalry, where you are a knight who bows the knee to your lord and kneel your head, and he'll put his sword on you because he can kill you if he wants to, but he's not going to. He's going to send you good things instead. He's going to have you work in his vineyard instead. Yes? So again, you are now slaves of God. Cling to that. That's good news. That means you can't run away. That means he owns you now. And the fruit of this is holiness. That is being different than the world. Not how you act, but who you are, which certainly will impact how you act. Because one who is not holy is going to walk with their head down, 
looking at where they're going, focused on what they're doing to try to get more for themselves. But the one who is in Christ gets to walk with your head up, looking toward the last day and seeing your neighbor as more important than yourself. Will you be perfect at this? That's a stupid question. But you're going to see how good it is compared to what else is. Verse 23, final verse. You should memorize this one. Highlight this one. Write this one down. Memorize it. I, uh, when I went to Lutheran schools, I memorized a lot of verses. I don't remember them all. I remember this one. It's so good. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages. Everyone knows what wages are. Except nobody knows what wages are. It's kind of weird, but you get wages. What you get paid for what you do. You go to work, you get your wages. Huh? So well, what do you get paid for for sin? Death. That's what you get paid. You get paid in death. It's going to happen if you're a sinner. Why do babies die? Hey, look at that. They're sinners. That's why. How's a baby sin? It's not about what you do. It's about who you are. It's about what blood runs in your veins. And the wages for traitorous, rebellious blood is death. But the free gift of God, notice there's no payment here, is giving. The free gift of God is eternal life, everlasting life, immortal life, in, already, he is risen, in Christ Jesus our Lord who has conquered death by his death, who has purchased you as his own, and who has declared to you that his own Holy Spirit is going to inhabit you to keep you from doing the evil that you find you want to do and to turn you back toward the good that your neighbor needs as you walk toward the next life in which it won't be a fight anymore. It'll just be who we are. In the name of Jesus, amen.